so we're going to go ahead and get rolling tonight right on time. Um, if people come in late, they come in late. Um, um, I do not personally have an extra one. Um, I do not. Um, okay, uh, so we are going to be uh, launching right on time. we got to get rolling. I'd like to get through uh, chapter 5 tonight and then as much as we can into chapter 6. I don't see us completing chapter 6 because there's too much content uh, for us to get through tonight. And so um, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer and then uh, we'll just get rolling. Um, Romans 5, we'll be starting in verse number 15 tonight, verse number 15. So Heavenly Father, we come to you. Uh, we just thank you for this evening where we can continue diving in a little deeper into your word uh, so that we can be equipped, Lord, uh, to, to answer questions, uh, so that we're equipped to grow, uh, to apply these truths to our lives so that we can be a better uh, image bearer uh, of your son. And so, Lord, I ask that um, you would help us to, um, to learn, to grow, to be open uh, tonight in our thoughts uh, as you speak to us through your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, uh, amen. Amen. And so uh, we're going to just kick off right at verse number 15 um, and just pick up where uh, we left off from last week. Uh, verse number 15 starts out by saying this, uh, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, as much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In verse 16, and that free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that may have seemed like a lot, uh, so let us just stop right there and kind of dive in. So Adam, uh, as we talked briefly about at the end last week, gave an offense that had consequences for the entirety of the human race. So as a result of Adam's offense, many died, is what Paul is saying, as, as because of Adam's offense. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's contrasting these two men still, and he's saying Jesus gives a free gift that has consequences as well for the entire human race, but in a completely different way, an opposite way. And so through the free gift of Jesus, like Paul says, the grace of God abounded too many. It was given too many. And so Adam's work brought death. Jesus' work brought grace. It brought life through Jesus. Now, when, he, when Paul said many died, it was, it was the beginning part to describe the result of Adam's offense against God towards mankind. And because of that, judgment came that resulted in condemnation and death, as, Adam, or as, as Paul says, reigned over mankind. But there was also the results of Jesus' free gift that we see. And that was that grace abounded to many and justification, meaning the many offenses that were laid on Jesus, we see now abundant grace 
and the gift of righteousness now reigning in the lives of those who have accepted the gift of salvation. So we could say almost, uh, probably in a nutshell, that both Adam and Jesus, now hear me out before you're like, what? We could say in, in, a, in a sense that both Adam and Jesus are kings, each instituting a reign. You guys following with me? Under Adam's reign, death. Under Christ's reign, life through his shed blood on the cross. So it's staggering to think about how complete death reigned under Adam. It's, it's that everyone who was born dies, meaning the mortality rate for the human is 100%. 100%. But if we think of this world, the current world in which we live, as the land of the living, but it's really the land of the dying. If you, I mean, if you think about it, this is the land of the dying. And the billions of human bodies that were cast into the earth over centuries proves that very thought. Why? Paul is saying that every man will die because of sin. That was a consequence that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden because they sinned initially. And so Paul is saying that the only reign of life that we can obtain is through whom? Through Jesus, that's right. Through Christ, and it's much more certain of a reign than that of under Adam. You guys tracking with me so far? And so look now, because now we're going to get this brief summary of what we've already learned in the first 17 verses of this chapter. And so verse 17, or sorry, 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so from the passage, Adam and Jesus are known in theology as the two men of life and death. And between them, they represent all of humanity. And everyone is either identified as in Adam or in Christ. And so when we are born, who are we identified with? Adam. So that means that when we're born again, our identification is found where? In Christ, that's right. And so the idea of Adam and Jesus as these two representatives, I'm going to give you a, a big theological word. It's really two uh, but it's a doctrine that um, describes what we are explaining. So the idea that Adam and Jesus are two representatives of the human race is what we call federal theology. Federal theology. Okay? Meaning that Adam and Jesus are referred to as what we would call the federal heads of the Christian race. Okay? And what that means is, is the same, um, unfortunately, it's tainted in our culture, but this is where our country gets what we call our federal system of government. It comes from this very thought that there are representatives that are chosen and those representatives speak for the people who choose them. You guys tracking with me? It's exactly how our government, our government works, though our government is tainted. So Adam speaks for those that he represents, and Jesus speaks for those that he represents. Again, some may object to that thought, the thought saying that I never chose Adam to represent me. 
Does anyone in here want to choose Adam to represent them? Good. I'm glad you all kept your hand down. But here's the, here's the thing. According to Scripture, we did. Wait, what? Pastor, how is that even true? I didn't wake up one day and be like, I want to live in Adam. I want to live in the sinful. Right. You identify yourself. I identify myself with Adam from the very first time that I sinned. The very first time that I sinned ever, I identified myself with the, the one who brought sin into the world, according to Scripture. Now, it's absolutely true that we were born into our identification with Adam, but we also chose it, and we continue to choose it by every individual act of sinfulness in our lives. You guys tracking so far? You guys following this? So the outcome of that election uh, of either choosing Adam or Jesus, it means completely everything to us and to our lives. Why? If we choose Adam, we've chosen what? Death, judgment, condemnation. But if we choose Jesus, what are we getting? What's that big word that starts with a J that we've been talking about a lot? Justification. In Christ or through Christ, we have received justification. So, I have a question for you. Does that mean that all men are justified by the free gift? No. No. So I want to stop right here for just a moment. And I had a conversation with somebody last week, maybe it was Sunday, uh, on this very thought. There is a belief that has been taught in churches, I want to say since the mid to late 80s. And that belief is something called universalism. Has anyone ever heard of that term before? It's a term that, that teaches or that people believe that it does not matter how everything plays out. In the end, all people will be in heaven. That's what universalism is. Or Christian universalism is another term that it goes by. And the reason why I asked that question there is for us to understand that up until this point, the Bible teaches the polar opposite of that. So what do we know so far from the book of Romans uh, about how justification works? By faith in? Yes. Correct. And through his death, we have been counted what? Righteous. And, and the only way that that occurs is what, is what does Paul tell us? And I know we haven't covered it yet, but what does Paul tell us that man must do? He says that we must believe where? We must believe these things about Christ where? In our heart, and then we must confess them with our mouth. And so the belief of universalism cannot stand according to the word of God. And so if you ever come across someone who has a belief or takes the belief that all men uh, will eventually end up in heaven, here's your perfect portions of scripture to go to and begin to work through justification and how that is laid out for us in scripture. Now, without making a personal choice, every person receives the curse of Adam's offense. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where we see the first gospel presentation by God himself to Adam and Eve. So is it therefore true that every person, apart from their personal choice, will receive 
the benefits of Jesus' obedience. Yep. Is it true that every person, apart from their personal choice, will receive the benefits through Jesus? I'm sorry? No, that's right. The answer is no, not at all. Paul makes it clear that the free gift is not like the offense, he said. It's the opposite of the offense, meaning that they're not identical in their result nor in their application. Over three verses, Paul told us that the work of Jesus was a free gift and he never used those words in applying to the work of Adam. Not one time did he use free gift in in that term Think of it this way, in the most simplistic nature of the gift, it must be received by faith. You guys following? The the gift that comes from Jesus must be received by faith. And Paul clearly teaches throughout the New Testament that not all are saved. That not all. So in what sense then, in what sense did the free gift come to all men? Sorry? Sorry? Um, yes, um, okay, sense, sorry, S-E-N-S-E. In what sense did the free gift come to all men? Yes, it came in the sense, so think about it this way, the gift was presented and will be presented to all men, but not all necessarily receive it. Okay, so the idea that all men are saved by the work of Jesus, whether they know it or not, is where the universalist will purposefully lean in that way, saying that it was not presented to all men or that not all men will reject it. They will come to passages of scripture in the the book of Revelation that say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and they will pull those out of context to see right here. Every person's going to end up in heaven because every person is bowed down. Every person has confessed according to the word of God. And so if the doctrine of universalism is being taught, Paul here would be contradicting himself. I mean, he's already pictured men as perishing because of sinfulness. And so Paul then begins to say, well, let me contrast these things for us so we can close this chapter out. So look at verse number 19. Yes. Yes, there is, there is still a choice that has to be made. There's still a choice, yes. After you recognize, you still have a choice. So Paul says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so at the root of what Paul's saying, he emphasizes again that we were made sinners by the work of Adam. Now, of course, we chose Adam when we personally sinned, like we just talked about. But the principle remains that since another man made us sinners, we can be made righteous by the work of another man. And this is the only way for the work of Jesus to benefit us in this life is that if every man 
must stand for himself without the representation of Adam or Jesus, we would still end up perishing. All of us. Every single one of us. None of us would be saved. Why? Because our sinfulness causes us to fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And so the person who says, I don't want to be represented by Adam, and I don't want to be represented by Jesus, I want to represent myself, doesn't understand two things. They don't understand first that it really is not up to them. That's not. And we didn't make the rules. We didn't lay this. God did. That's the first. The second is that we don't understand our personal righteousness, according to Isaiah, before God is as filthy rags. And so to God, our personal righteousness is an offensive counterfeit. Our standing before God is one of eternal damnation if it was just on our own. And so Paul goes on to say that now that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul Paul shows us that the law cannot justify us. We've been talking about it for a couple of chapters now. And he shows us that in itself, the law doesn't even make us sinners. Adam did that. Adam made us sinners. So then what, what purpose does the law even serve? I mean, Paul clearly, clearly lays out that the law and the part of it is that the offense might abound that offense so the law makes it makes man's sin clearer and greater by clearly contrasting it with God's holy standard and so another way that I could say this is that the law makes sin abound would be the most simplistic way we could say it the law makes sin abound now now before you say wait what that doesn't make sense to me. Because of the sinfulness of man's hearts, when we see a line, we want to cross it. Will you guys agree with me on that? When we see of the line, we want to make sure that we get across it. So in a sense, the law makes sin abound because it draws very, very clear lines between right and wrong. And my sinful heart wants to break the lines that it has. I mean, we're seeing that in our culture right now. Every single thing that is happening in our culture is to push the limits, to push the boundaries. Let's break the bounds. Let's redefine the boundaries. But the, the boundaries have been laid out. Why? Because the law makes me sin more. Not because there's anything wrong in the law itself, only because something is deeply wrong in me. That's why. So if sin abounded under the law, Paul says, then grace had to abound that much more through Christ. And so that, that phrase, abounded much more, means super abounded. Without boundaries abounded. Like limitless amounts of grace. And so God makes his super abounding grace overabound our sinfulness and and if grace superabounds over sin 
then we know that it's impossible to outsin the grace of God. So, has anyone in here ever heard somebody, I don't think God could save me because of what I've done? Like many hands, right? Many people, probably even more than one time, from different people, even at that. Well, we can't sin more than God can forgive. We can't. We, we can reject that grace, right? We can reject the forgiveness, but Paul stated before that sin reigned in death, but grace, but grace reigned also. And the reign of grace is marked by righteousness and eternal life, and that is through Jesus, through Jesus. So many people have this thought This idea that where grace reigns, there is somehow a disregard for righteousness or there's some casual attitude towards sinfulness. But that is not the reign of grace at all, at least not in my opinion. Um, I'm going to share with you, hopefully here in just a few minutes, a story um, of a situation. I mean, Paul starts out the very next chapter by saying, you know, should I continue in my sin lest grace would abound? Should I just keep doing what I'm doing? But Paul wrote in another letter. He wrote to a young man by the name of Titus. And he said this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, listen to this, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. We should live righteously and godly in what age, people? The present, that means the right here and right now, the present age, that is how we are supposed to be living life. And so grace reigns through righteousness and grace teaches righteousness. And so the grace of God gives us something, but it also takes us somewhere, okay? It gives more than never-ending life. Wherever grace rules, God's righteous standard must be respected, wherever grace rules. And so let me let me explain it this way, the legalist, right? The the one who is so over the top law leaning fears that the the reign of grace will provide wicked hearts with a license to sin. That's what the legalist sees here in the text. Uh, but scripture doesn't share in that fear, not at all. In fact, he says here that grace does not accommodate sin. It squares off with sin. Why? Because it knows that it will conquer it. Grace knows that it will conquer sin. And so grace doesn't accommodate that. It doesn't wink at unrighteousness. It confronts sin with the atonement of the cross and the victory that was already won through Jesus Christ. And so I would say it this way. Grace is no friend of sin. In fact, grace and sin, in my opinion, according to Scripture, are enemies of each other. Um, how many of you uh, have ever read or know of the book uh, called P- uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Okay, so some of you. So Pilgrim's Progress was a book I probably read for the first time when I was 14 or 15 years old, and I've probably read the book 18 or 20 times. Why? Because there's something about the book that makes me come back and revisit the things in my life uh, where I fell um, short 
of what God had called me to do. It makes me look at all of the examples that were set around me. But in this book, there is this man, and, and his name is Mr. Honest. Really clever, right? He's supposed to be the guy in the book that always tells the truth. The guy that always does the right thing. And so in the book, he travels uh, on what they call the pilgrim's way. And along the, uh, along the way, he, um, he talks about and, and sees many people or, or fellow pilgrims. And there's a few that he specifically identifies in the book. He talks about people who set out boldly on their course to follow Christ, but then they turned back. Then he goes on to talk a little bit later in the book about others who stumbled along the way at first, but they finished in strong fashion. But then he talks about those who were completely full of faith on their journey towards heaven, on their journey to finish the race, but they ended in complete doubt about the work of God in their lives. But then others ended in a greater assurance at the end of their journey. And Mr. Honest knew more than anybody else in the book about the journey of the Christian life. And he summed up all of his knowledge in two words on his deathbed in the book. For those of you who, who have read the book, do you remember what those two words were? Grace reigns. Grace reigns. And so I have a question that I don't want you to answer. A question that if you are a note taker or a journaler, I want you to write the question down. And I want you to pray over it. Who in your life needs more grace from you? Who in your life needs more grace? grace from you. I don't need to know. You don't have to come and tell me. But it's something I want you to I want you to write it down. I want you to think about. It. I want you to pray over it. And then I'm going to challenge you to ask God to grow you in becoming more grace-filled. And then do what's right in those situations. Now, before we dive in to chapter number six, I have another question. This time I want you to answer. What? What would be at stake in your life this week if you considered yourself alive in sin and dead to God? What would be at stake in your life this week if you considered yourself alive in sin but dead to God? Sorry? Who said that? Yes, okay. Anything else? She 
said going to hell. Like I'd be on the pathway to hell. Yes. Okay, we'd be ruining our witness or that the people would be affected probably in a greater capacity. Um, okay, yeah, go ahead. Your ability to sleep. Okay, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so your, your physical life, your health. Okay, a broken relationship with, with Christ. I'm sorry? Hope. We would be hopeless, yes. Yes, that is great. There, there is going to be a lot uh, to take in and to consider today in regards to uh, what I'm going to call uh, the believer under grace and then the problem of habitual sin. The problem of habitual sin. The reason I ask the question is because oftentimes I don't believe we as believers are challenged enough to reflect upon the grace that has been given to us. I believe oftentimes we forget to be thankful to the God who is forbearing with us. And so today I want us now to, to dive into the next section here, uh, chapter 6, and I want us to start to look at what it means to be dead in sin, but alive to God. Dead in sin, but alive to God. And so look at verse number one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace would abound? And then he stops. A question to open up. One of my favorite things about reading books, reading chapters of the Bible, um, is when someone asks me a question. Because then I want to answer it knowing that that person's not going to ever receive my answer, probably ever. Uh, but then I want to know, what are they going to say that's going to persuade me to answer one way or another? And so Paul introduced this idea where sin abounds, grace abounded so much more in the last chapter. And so now he wonders if someone might take that truth and imply that it does not matter if a Christian lives in a life of sin because God will always overcome greater sin with greater grace. And so Paul is like, uh, I need to ask this question and then I need to answer this question. Because after all, right, uh, the, the voice um, of our culture says God loves sinners, so why worry about it? I mean, that's, that's what's going on, right? If God gives grace to the sinner, then why not sin more and receive more grace? Right? I mean, these are logical questions that someone could ask. So some people think, and I'm going to give us an example some people think that their job is to sin and God's job is to forgive. So they'll do their job and God will do his job. And that's, un unfortunately, uh, I mean, some of you kind of have that look like that is the dumbest thing ever. But unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who think that way. There are a lot of people who sit in churches. There are pastors in this country that preach that way. And so in the early part 
of the, or the early part of the 20th century, there was a Russian monk by, by the name of Gregory Rasputin. Um, if you have children, if you've ever seen the, the child's uh, movie Anastasia, he is portrayed in that movie. Um, and, and he taught and lived uh, the idea of salvation through repeated experiences of deep sinfulness and then repentance and then deep sinfulness and then repentance and he lived in that vicious cycle and taught that vicious cycle his entire life he believed that because those who sin the most require the most forgiveness a sinner who continues to sin without constraint actually enjoys more of God's grace this is what he thought this is what he taught and so he would repent for the moment and then in the next continue doing what he was repenting for that's exactly how he lived his life and Rasputin lived in such notorious sin and taught that that was the way uh, to salvation and he persuaded hundreds of thousands of people to live in the exact same way. Now that's an extreme example behind the idea of what Paul is bringing out here and saying, shall we continue in our sin that grace would abound? But in a less extreme way, the question still confronts every single one of us. Is the plan of grace safe won't people just abuse it if God's salvation and approval are given on the basis of faith instead of works can't we just say I believe and then live whatever way that we please well from a, a a purely natural uh, or purely secular viewpoint, grace is dangerous. Uh, that's why many people don't really teach or believe in grace, and they emphasize so much of the law. That's why there are a lot of churches that lean heavily towards legalism, that do these things or you're going to hell mentality. Right, And the belief is, is that if you tell people that God saves and accepts them apart from what they deserve, then they will have no motive to be obedient. That, that's the belief in some circles. And in their opinion, you, you simply can't keep people on the straight and narrow without the threat of God dangling over their head. And so if they believe their position in Jesus is settled and they believe because of what he did, then the motivation for holy living is just completely gone for those people. And so Paul says, shall we continue in sin? Now, I want us to stop. Is there, is there anyone here who likes English? Like, I, I like writing, and I love to talk about English. Okay, so the verb tense here, and this is important for us, the verb tense when Paul says, shall we continue in sin, is what we call the present active tense. It makes it clear that Paul is describing a practice of habitual sin, doing the same thing over and over and over, repeatedly the exact same thing. And so in the first part here of Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing about someone who remains in a lifestyle of sin, thinking that it's acceptable 
so that grace will abound. You guys following with me so far? Right. So look now at verse number two. He says, he, now he answers the question to verse number one. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the idea here that anyone might continue in sin, that grace would abound, is unthinkable to Paul. Completely unthinkable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how can you answer that question um, according to what Paul says? The answer is no, but yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, by nature... We, according to Paul, were born children of wrath. Um, and so, yes, we, we will do the very work uh, of the Antichrist uh, when we do the opposite of what, of what God wants us to do. Yeah, go ahead. There was another hand over here. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. I mean, the, the idea here uh, when Paul said certainly not or by no means was a super strong phrase. It, it, think about it this way. When Paul is saying, is this a license to sin? He's saying to us, perish the thought of that sinfulness. Throw it away. Like throw away the notion that I'm okay to sin because of God's grace. I mean, he then even asked the question, how shall we who died to sin continue living in it? How do we keep doing that? And so he begins to establish this very, very important principle to us. Like when we are born again, like when we have believed on Jesus for our salvation, our relationship with sin should have permanently changed, is what Paul is saying. It should have completely changed, meaning we have died to sin. That's what Paul said. 
We have died to sin. So if we have died to sin, then we should not live in it any longer, is what Paul is saying. So it simply isn't fitting to live any longer in something that have that you've already died to. Would you guys agree with that? Like, it's not fitting to live in sin if it's supposed to be dead. So at this point, Paul has much to explain to us. Much to explain about what exactly he means by dead to sin or died to sin. But the general point is clear. Christians have died to sin, so they should no longer live in it. They should no longer live in it. Now, before we were dead in sin, does anyone know what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2? We were dead in what? Yes, we were dead in our trespasses, but as a Christian, sin, we are dead now to sin. Not in sin, but to sin. So look now at verse number 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now stop right there. The implications of what Paul is dealing with, fundamental, these are fundamental concepts that every Christian should know. Fundamental concepts that every Christian should know. Now I want us to know here that the idea behind the, the ancient Greek word baptized that he used here. I know it was already on the screen. But it's the Greek word baptizo. And it means to immerse or submerge specifically and ceremonially into water. Now this right here answers the very question of why any other form of baptism is not biblical. You guys tracking with me? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Mm -hmm. Does anyone want to answer that question? Yeah, go ahead. Do you know the answer why? I'm going to explain a little bit further. Does anyone else want to add to that? I'm glad there's not a camera because I'm over here like. So say that again. Yes, did you guys hear this? It is not the act of baptism that saves you. And so when you backslide, you, you don't have to get re-baptized uh, because it's not that ritual that has, has given you the forgiveness. Yes, perfectly. Yeah, go ahead and then we'll move on. Yes. Yes.
Yes, I love that. It's not starting over um, after salvation and, and progress and then backsliding. You're not starting over. I love that. Think about think about the Christian life as climbing to the top of a mountain. You start out at the base at salvation, and every step that you make, every little bit of progress that you make, well, what if you slip and you slide 25 feet backwards? Did you... Did you have to go all the way through the process of asking for salvation again? No. Unfortunately, the, the Pentecostal uh, church teaches that very thing. That every time you sin, you have to re-pray for salvation. And that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches us. And so the Bible uses uh, this idea of being baptized into something in several different ways. And so when a person is baptized in water, they're immersed or they're completely covered in water. In Matthew chapter 3, in Acts chapter 1, it says that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, meaning that they were immersed or they were covered with the Holy Spirit. When they were baptized with suffering in Mark chapter 10, they were immersed or they were covered with suffering. It's the same exact word. And so Paul here is being uh, is using or referring to the word baptized or immersed or covered in Jesus Christ. And so water baptism uh, that is performed in churches is being baptized into Christ, meaning it's, a, it's an acting out or a dramatization of the believer's identification with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, which is why, um, I don't know if you guys were here on Easter, there was a young lady who was baptized, and we said you're buried with him in baptism, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. So from that, and other references to baptism in Paul's writings, it's plain that he is not regarding, or that Paul did not regard baptism as an optional extra in the Christian life. Like he builds on the idea of going under the water as the picture of the burial. Your old man is being buried and you are raised to walk in newness of life. Your identification is now in front of your church body saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and this is how I want to live. Now, in regards though to baptism, it's important um, as an illustration of a spiritual reality, okay? It, it does not make that reality come to pass like Amy was talking about. So if someone has not uh, spiritually died and risen with Christ, all of the baptisms in the world could not accomplish spiritually rising with Christ. Only Jesus can. And so Paul points very clear to something dramatic and something life-changing, though, that happens in the life of a believer. You cannot die and be raised again without a change in your life. It's, it's impossible. The, the believer has a, a real, although spiritual, death and a resurrection with Jesus Christ. And so I just want to stop for a moment because... Um, He's going to get away from baptism, and then he's going to address it again in a couple of chapters. And so I just want to kind of stop here. There, um, there is a belief um, and a teaching in some churches uh, that, um, what, and it's what we would call baptismal regeneration. It is a belief, and this is, I'm going to come back and, and talk to you something that you said. 
Baptismal regeneration is the belief that if you ask for salvation, if you pray for salvation, that salvation is not complete until you have been baptized. So meaning that if you prayed for salvation and you died on the way to your baptism, you would not get into heaven because you were not baptized. They, they, well, the, the term sacrament is used to describe the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism. But they, they used, this is what we would call salvation through Jesus plus baptism. And they take this idea from one simple, um, very short verse in the book of Acts where Peter says, repent and be baptized. And that's where they take that belief from. Now we know that's not true. Uh, we know, um, and Paul's going to kind of enlighten us a little bit further on baptism in the coming weeks, but there's something here that we must understand, those two crucial things. So baptismal regeneration is the first one. The second one is that scripturally speaking, baptism is full immersion in water. And anything that goes against full immersion in water following salvation is unbiblical. It is unbiblical. Now, um, everyone's got that. Any questions before? Yes. I would say according to scripture, it's, it's not biblical baptism. The word baptized is full immersion underwater. And so according to the Greek, in the, in the original Greek, to be immersed or submerged, not, that, that's not sprinkling on one's head, um, fully immersed in water. You, so the sprinkling, the baptism was the signification of my identification with the death, burial, and complete resurrection. Sprinkling does not show that. And so scripturally speaking, from scriptural baptism is full immersion underwater and being fully raised to walk in newness of life. So it, to me, there's, I don't believe that someone could say, well, my heart was, was right, but the act was wrong. That, that still doesn't make the act right because my heart was right. That's like doing what's right at the wrong time. Sure. Okay. But the ceremonial cleaning was something different than baptism. Those are two vastly different things. The cleaning was done before the ceremony of sacrifice, before a feast. Uh, so like at Pentecost uh, or um, in the gathering of the Passover. Those were, those were ceremonial rites that were done according to the law. Baptism was something completely different to them. 
Well, sorry, was someone going to say something? I'm sorry? Well, I would say that their, that their belief um, and their interpretation of what God's word says. Not every pastor is going to study out the original text before they preach it. Not every pastor studied Hebrew. Not every pastor studied out Greek. Um, some just don't know because they haven't learned. Um, others take a, a very, very firm stand. I mean, look at the Catholics. The Catholics believe that if you sprinkle a baby, that they're good for the rest of their life. Well, wait, that flies in the face of Scripture as well because baptism follows salvation. So what if that child got saved 15 years later or 40 years later or 60 years later? Can they just say, well, I was baptized as a kid before I was saved, so I'm good? Well, no, that, that goes against the word of God. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yes, yes, agreed, agreed. No, that's what that's what we call baptismal regeneration. Yeah, you know that's not true. No, it's not. If you if, if now yes, please please hear me. Um, and then Amy, you had your hand up. So you you if you died before you got baptized, you will still go to heaven if you have prayed for salvation through Christ. You guys, we're all clear on that, right? Right. If you've prayed for salvation, yes, but correct, you'll still. Right, yes, yes. Correct. 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 That is a correct statement, yes. And I'll respond to that in a minute, but go ahead. What do you mean? Yep, baptize Jesus and right. In scripture we are not it's not specifically laid out for us that baptism occurred in like according to Old Testament law or Pharisees or anything like that. Yeah. totally agreed because that's that's exactly what Paul is, is, is explaining here he said you're you're buried uh, or your baptism is that exact re- we're identifying ourselves with the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that's what that is and that is the outward expression of the inward change that has occurred in your life and you're standing before your your church body wherever it is that you go and you're saying I'm identifying with that death burial and resurrection and so yeah go ahead 
Okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. Did you guys hear him, what he said? So he was, he, you said 25 years ago? Okay. So he was an elder. <laughs> he was an elder in the Lutheran church, got saved and got baptized in a Baptist church. And they asked him to step away from his position because he got baptized in a Baptist church, which doesn't align with their type of baptism or, or their belief of baptism. I mean, there are, there are, vast, there are vast differences across, like cross-denominationally. Uh, there are vast differences. Um, I will tell you that the Wesleyan Church um, and the American Baptist Church and um, some uh, Brethren churches, um, some Presbyterian churches, depending on which portion of the Presbyterian church you fall in, they all believe in full immersion according to the Word of God. That's what, like so. The Wesleyan, like our denomination. Um, and even if, the, even if we were not a Wesleyan church, um, I would still teach it and preach it that way because that's what the Word of God says to us. And so a full immersion is biblical, but back to what Kay was saying, if you were sprinkled and then you got saved or you got saved and you never got to be baptized, yes, you will still go to, you will still go to heaven. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Right. Christ is the defining moment for salvation, yes. But I guess I would just throw this out there. Rachel, go ahead, and then I'll make a blanket statement, and then we're going to move beyond baptism. That's exactly what I was going to say next. My blanket statement is this. Um, just because um, we can make it to heaven without baptism doesn't mean that we shouldn't 
get baptized. Doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't get baptized scripturally, in a scriptural way. Um, baptism was to be a step of obedience to identify you with Christ. And just, just because salvation has occurred uh, does not mean that we can disobey what is being asked of us as a follower of Jesus Christ so that it so that it's okay with my person because my flesh uh, is always going to steer me away from what is true always and so my blanket statement is just because you're saved doesn't mean you shouldn't get scripturally baptized you should do every act of obedience uh, until the day that you die and God says, I no longer need you upon the earth. Um, it doesn't matter if it's baptism. It doesn't matter if it's um, drinking or smoking or overeating or adultery. It doesn't matter what it is. We should always be striving to be obedient to what the word of God teaches. Always. There are no ifs, ands, and buts in the Christian life about what to follow and what not to follow uh, of truth. And so, yeah, go ahead, and then we'll move on. Nope, you're good. Sure. Absolutely. Agreed. So if you would go with me to verse number five, and we're going to keep rolling. We're going to keep rolling here. It says, for, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a, re a res resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, we have also lived with him or live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now let's just stop right there for just a minute at the end of verse 10. Paul is now beginning to express a close union here. A, a close union such as the process of when a graft becomes united with the tree of life. The union is so close that a life from Christ flows through to Christ. Do you guys, you guys see that? This is exactly, the, probably in my opinion, one of the most fitting pictures of what Jesus said in John chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. Probably one of the best. We are in this close union um, both to his death and to his resurrection. Now God has experienced both for us. And Paul expressed a, a very similar idea 
in Philippians chapter 3 about his own life when he said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death by any means is what Paul said that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what so many people are ready to be united together in the glory of the resurrection, but they're unwilling to be united together in his death. And so our participation in the death of Jesus makes our participation in the resurrection certain. And so if it's, if it's too easy for some Christians uh, to focus solely on a crucified life, they fail to see that it's part of a bigger picture. It's the preparation for the resurrected life or, or for the eternal life. And so Paul says, knowing all of that, knowing all of that, our old man was crucified with him. Meaning that the death of the old man was an established fact for the Christian. It happened spiritually when we identified with Jesus and his death at our salvation. And so the old man is the, is the self, the one within us that's patterned after Adam. That's the old man. The one patterned after Adam. And the part of us that's deeply ingrained with rebellion against God and rebellion against his commands. And so the system of law is unable to deal with the old man because it can only tell the old man what the righteous standard of God is. And so the law tr cannot try to reform the, or reform the old man uh, to get him to turn over a new leaf. It won't work. Uh, but the system of grace, right, salvation through Christ, understands that the old man died with Jesus on the cross. He's dead. Our old nature is dead according to, according to Scripture right here. And so the crucifixion of the old man is something that God did in each and every one of us at our salvation. The crucifixion of the old man. Do you know none of us nailed the old man to the cross? None of us did that. Jesus did that. Jesus nailed the old man and we are told in the last chapter that it was accounted done for us. It's done. It's all the way over. So in place of the old man, God gives us the new man. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old has passed away and behold all things have been made new. Right? You guys following with me? So a self that is instinctively obedient and pleases God is the new man. And the aspect of our person is that which was raised with Christ in his resurrection. That's where that comes from. So listen, the new man is described in this way. Where are you? Oh, there you are. The new man is described in this way. It says, the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.24. But in Colossians chapter 3, he says, the new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so God uses our old death or the death of our old man and the sin nature and he liberates us from our sin. And so a dead man 
can no longer have authority over your life. So we are to remember that the account of the old man has been crucified with Jesus. You know, there are two other places in the New Testament, specifically in the New Testament, that mention the old man. And in both places, we are reminded that we need to consider him done away with in our lives. They tell us, specifically, Paul says, put off, put off the old man, or put away the earthly things, or put to death the earthly things that are in you. Why? Because there is something that was dead and gone with Jesus Christ. And so he's saying we don't do battle with the old man. We don't. We don't do battle. We simply reckon him dead in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said that evil enters us now as a stranger, as a, as a works, and it works sad havoc, but it does not abide in us upon the throne. It is an alien, and it's despised, and it's no more honored and delighted in. We are dead to the reigning power of sin, is what Charles Spurgeon said. He's saying the exact same thing Paul is saying, that if the old man is dead, if the old man is dead, he has no power over your life. So then I have a question for you. If the old man is dead, why do I feel a pull to the sin inside me? Anyone ever been in that place? The old man is dead, but you still feel the pull to your sinfulness? Well, it comes from the flesh. It comes from the flesh, which is distinct from the old man. Now, some of you are kind of giving me the eyes, like, what? It's harsh, it is very, very hard to precisely define the flesh, at least in my opinion. It's hard. Um, I would say that it is the screen on which the inner man is displayed. It's the screen on which the inner man is displayed. Our inner being has desires and passions and impulses. And they're played out in our minds, and they're played out in our wills, and they're played out in our emotions. The flesh is what acts out the inner man. You guys tracking so far? So the flesh is a problem in the battle against sin because it has been expertly trained in sinful habits by three sources. The first is the old man. Our flesh has been trained in sinful habits by our old man. Before he was crucified with Christ, he was imprinted upon in our flesh, our sin nature. The second is our world system. In the spirit of rebellion against God, the world system continues to have influence on the flesh of man. And then the final one is Satan, or his demonic presence in the world. And it seeks to tempt and influence the flesh towards sinfulness. And so when the old man is dead, what do we do with the flesh? What do we do? Well, I'm sorry? Right. God calls us in participation with him to actively do day by day with the flesh what he already did on the cross with your old man, and that's to crucify it. To crucify, the, to make it dead, as Paul says in Galatians 5, make it dead 
to sin. Yes, absolutely. I would definitely agree. So, did you guys hear him? He said the point of talking about the old man is to show what Christ did on the cross for us. Right? Did I, did I get you right? Okay, perfect. And so, when, when uh, we allow the flesh to be continually influenced by the old man's habits of the past, when we allow the flesh to be influenced by the world, when we allow the flesh to be tempted and walk in those temptations that are, are given our way, the flesh will exert a powerful pull towards sin every single time. And if we let the new man within us, if we let that new man, the, the Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-led man or woman, okay, if we let them influence the mind and the will and the emotions, well, guess what happens? We find that the battle against our flesh and against the world and against demonic presence is less intense. Would you guys agree with that? We should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin, is what Paul said. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, having less, less of us um, and more of, more of God's presence. Yeah, go ahead and then Laura, I'll get you back there. So I'm hopefully going to unpack a little bit more about why, uh, why that still occurs. And then next week when we jump into chapter 7, probably one of my favorite chapters in the book of Romans, uh, you know, where Paul talks about, you know, why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do? And yet I do the things I know are like, I do the things that I hate. Why is that? Um, and so I'm hopefully going to unpack that for us next week. Um, yeah, Laura, go ahead.
Sure. Agreed. I, I think a lot of people look at um, at those types of struggles with with media of any kind, or in your you know in your case, like you said, with eating, and and we look at we look at those, and we we think to ourselves, well, those can't become addictions to us because it's not a drug. They can't it can't become an addiction because it's it it doesn't have nicotine or it's not an alcohol, and oftentimes um, the 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 crutch that we're using to replace what God should be filling is your idol. Just simple, plain and simple. The thing that we use to, that we, the thing that we run to, right? Um, uh, there is a, um, a gifted musician who wrote a song called Clear the Stage. And he, he says in the song, uh, anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. And so he says, you know, clear the stage. Clear the stage. And his song is, is talking about stripping away everything so that we can hear from God. So that we can lay aside the idols of our lives. Now listen, the, the biggest thing that we, we need to grasp and get tonight is that our slavery to sin can only be broken by death. Can only be broken by death. Now listen, um, how many of you like older movies? Okay, how many of you in here have ever seen, um, I can't remember what year it came out, but I know it came out in the 60s, uh, but the film Spartacus. You guys ever seen it? It's Kirk Douglas. Uh, plays Spartacus. He's the main. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Spartacus uh, was a slave, and in the movie, he leads this widespread slave rebellion in ancient Rome. That's what the whole entire movie's about. And at one point in the movie, he, he has this very important and crucial line, and it, it speaks so clearly to what Paul is saying. He said, death is the only freedom a slave knows, and that's why he's not afraid of it. Death is the only freedom a slave knows, and that's why he's not afraid of it. We are set free from sin because the old man has been crucified. He's dead on the cross. And the new man, the free man, lives. The free man lives, and since we've already died to sin with Jesus, death can no longer have dominion over us. That means our sinfulness can no longer have dominion over us, meaning that the new man not only has life, but he has eternal life. The new life that we're granted isn't given so that we can live unto ourselves. The new life that is given, Paul says, he lives to God. He lives to God. And so we're not dead to sin. We're free from sin. We're given eternal life, not to live as we please, but to live to please God. 
And so that change in life um, of the one that has been born again was understood and predicted as a feature of God's new covenant in the New Testament, where because of our new hearts, our innermost being wants to do God's will, and we become slaves now of righteousness. Go ahead. I mean, his mercies are new every day. I, I believe that Ezekiel uh, probably explained um, in a very beautiful picture what Paul is now reiterating when he says in Ezekiel 36, and I, speaking of God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Have you guys ever heard that verse before? Right, but most times people stop there and they don't read the next one that says, and I, God, will put my spirit within you. He puts his spirit, and then what does it say? But it says that he causes us to walk in his statutes and will be obedient to his will. And we skip, the, we skip the part after what, it, what he does. Yeah, he's given us a new heart, but guess what he does with that new heart? You also get his spirit. And by that spirit, he will guide you in doing what is right. You're given the opportunity. You know, in the 16th century, the, the church in England, the early church in England, had what they called 42 articles that they, they used uh, as... Um, not rules, but codes of ethic to live by. And in article number 11 in the church uh, expressed what I believe something very beautiful that came right out of Ezekiel 36, and it says, The grace of Christ, or the Holy Ghost by him given, doth take away the stony heart and giveth a heart of flesh. And it was something that they used to pray over each other on a weekly basis. That they would not have hearts of stone, but that they would have hearts of flesh. Now, Paul begins to give us practical applications, though, and principles of our death and our resurrection with Jesus. And so, look with me at verse 11 and 12. He says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So let's stop there. He starts out by saying, Let's let not sin therefore, sorry, in verse 11. So you must also consider yourself dead. When he said this, that phrase is an accounting word, let us consider. Let us consider. It's an accounting word. Paul is telling us to account the old man as forever dead. He's forever dead. And God never called us to crucify the old man. Instead, he accounts him already dead because our identification is with Jesus' death on the cross. And so the death to sin is only the one side of the equation. The old man is already gone, but the new man lives on, as we already looked at at the beginning of the chapter. And so Paul said, because of that, because the new man lives on, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. 
Don't let sin. Now, this is something that can only be said to a Christian. It can only be said to the Christian. Why? Because he's the only one that's had the old man crucified with Christ. The only person that's set free from sin can be told, do not let sin reign. The, the Christian is the only truly set free one. The man or the woman or the child or the teenager who has not yet converted to Christianity is free to sin. You guys tracking with me? But they're not free to stop sinning and live righteously because the tyranny of the old man still exists within them. And so in Jesus, we're truly set free and are offered the opportunity to obey the natural inclination of the new man. And that is that thing that wants to please and honor God. So, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The old man is dead, therefore there is new life, free from sin in Christ. Huh. That's a really great question. He said, are we not free then to choose sin? Are we not free? So now I'm going to tell us a story that hopefully answers that question. <laughs> Actually, give me a second and then I'll answer the question. There are many Christians that never experience the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about because of unbelief because of self-reliance, or because of just plain ignorance. You know, many Christians never live in the freedom that Jesus paid for on the cross. Um, how many of you know the name D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody used to speak of an old black woman in his, his sermons quite frequently uh, from the South following the Civil War. And he had the opportunity to meet with this lady. And, and being a former slave, she was confused about her status following the Emancipation Proclamation that was signed by Abraham Lincoln. And she asked of the question, now is I free or been I not? And when I go to my old master, he says that I'm not free. When I go to my own people, they say that I is but I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but my master said that he didn't, that he didn't have a right to. And that is the exact place that many Christians find themselves. They are and have been legally set free from the slavery to sin, and yet they're unsure of that truth. The following verses, though, are going to give us practical help in living out the freedom in which Jesus has granted. And now I'm going to read to us some verses that will hopefully answer this question. Because his question was, like, are we then, not, like, are we then free, to, free to sin? Now listen to verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So a person can officially be set free yet still imprisoned. Okay? So if a person lives in prison for years and years and years and then they're set free from the prison system, they often act at first like they're still prisoners. Okay? 
the habits of freedom are not ingrained into one's life. And so Paul here shows us how to build habits of freedom in the Christian life. And I believe here also explains that we can still freely choose to sin, but we don't have to choose to sin. So in the 14th century, there were these two brothers who fought for the rights to rule over what we know of today as the country of Belgium. Um, the elder brother's name was Reynald, and he was commonly called Crassus, which is a Latin, um, really awful, a Latin nickname meaning fat, because Reynald was morbidly obese. After a heated battle with Reynald's brother, Edward, um, he led a successful revolt against his brother, and he overthrew his brother and assumed the title over the entire land. But instead of killing Reynald, Edward had a, a very curious imprisonment for his brother. He built a room in the castle around Crassus, completely around him, a room that had only one door, and that door was not locked. The windows that they put in had no bars, and Edward promised his brother that he could regain his title and all of his land at any time that he wanted to. All he had to do was to leave the room. Now, the obstacle to freedom for Reynald was the fact that he was morbidly obese. It was not in the doors, it was not in the windows, but it was in Reynald himself. He was grossly overweight and he could not fit through a regular sized door. So all Reynald had to do was to diet down to a smaller size and walk out a free man with all he had before. All of his land, all of his money, and his title. But the younger brother, Edward, kept sending him an assortment of good food and Reynald's desire to be free never won out over his desire to want to eat. Now some people in their village accused Edward of being cruel to his older brother. But he would simply reply, my brother is not a prisoner, he may leave whenever he wills. Do you know Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years? years he was trapped in that room until his brother was killed in battle it was the only reason that he ever got out of that room and that is an accurate illustration of the experiences of many christians jesus sets them free legally and they may walk in that freedom from sin whenever they choose to but since they keep yielding to their bodily appetites to the service of sin, they live a life of defeat. They live a life of discouragement and oftentimes a life of imprisonment. Yeah, go ahead. So, It's not a simple answer. Um, the Bible tells us that when salvation occurs in the life of an individual, that that individual has been radically changed, that the old man is dead. We've been talking about that, right? Now, 
upon salvation, what are we given, aside from eternal life, what is given to us by God? Right, the Holy Spirit indwells inside the life of a believer, okay? And so the Holy Spirit, we know from John, guides us in truth and reminds us of truth, okay? Now, there are people, like Paul talked about, those who have a seared conscience, so those who have pushed away the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life to the point where they're no longer responsive, okay? So, I don't believe, in my opinion, um, if you have been radically changed by God, if you've been given the Holy Spirit and you are growing, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm not talking about uh, behavior modification that looks like godly fruit. But the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your fruit. You cannot, for long, massive, long periods of time, display godly fruit well if you are not a believer. That's not possible. Time spent in the word of God produces fruit. And that fruit tells you what it is. Time, truth, and fruit will never, never lie is what our pastor used to say to us when I was a child. Time spent in truth produces godly fruit, and godly fruit does not, does not lie. And so there is this topic talked about in the book of Jude called apostasy. Apostasy is a topic in which uh, someone was walking in this direction and now they have renounced that and they're walking in this direction. And it's very clear in scripture that that does happen. But then it poses many questions that unfortunately, because I'm not God, I cannot answer man's heart, like what man's heart is. Apostasy is a rejection of what was once believed or what was once followed, okay? But I would then ask the question, were you truly saved to begin with? If you chose if you chose to walk away, were you truly saved in the first place or were you faking it? Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come out and, and say it like that to somebody, um, but I, I, I would seriously ask those questions. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, a, an individual person can be facing or can be supportive of one and then reject another. In the Bible, it is mostly associated with groups of people that claimed to follow and then rejected. Correct, correct, absolutely, absolutely. Yep, go ahead. Sure. I'm going to, I'll make a statement at the end that will hopefully bring a little bit of clarity to what, what I believe scripture teaches us. So 
there's this argument that has been made by um, certain denominations that will use the phrase once saved, always saved. You guys probably have heard the phrase, right? Once saved, always saved. I don't believe, scripturally speaking, that I could back up that phrase that's used by most Calvinistic churches. The phrase that I believe very clearly from scripture that I could back up is once saved, forever following. Once saved, forever following. I'm told in scripture that if I submit to the Lord, I will be able to persevere the things of this life. It's very clearly laid out in scripture. In fact, in the end, for those of you who came through the Revelation study, perseverance was given to the believer to make it through the things that they had to walk through. And so in my opinion, from scripture, we are told that we can persevere. And so if I truly am submitted to God, as in I've given my life up, said, God, this is your will, and I will do, now am I still a sinner? Yes. So I believe wholeheartedly, once saved, forever following. Once saved, forever following. I don't know that I could ever argue um, a Calvinist away from once saved, always saved, because that's, they lean heavily that way, but... The battle between, uh, between the spirit and the flesh. The, wage, the war that's waged between them. Right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, go ahead. What? So good, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it could be asked, why Why is sin? Yeah. Agreed.
right? I, I believe it was C.S. Lewis or maybe it was Charles Spurgeon that said, only those who dive deep in the sea of affliction will bring up the rarest of pearls. So I, I don't, I don't believe, I, I believe that whatever God allows for us to walk through in this life will only bring about more glory for himself, whatever that is. Whatever the, whatever the pain is, whatever the heartache, whatever the hurt, whatever the, I mean, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, all of it, whatever God allows. And I, I tell people, often, often I tell people this, uh, whatever we walk through in this life has already passed through the hands of the Savior before it even got to us. It already passed through his hands before we even walked one foot into it. And so, um, yeah, and it's all for his glory. All of it is. Every every single piece of it is for his glory. Hey guys, we're just we're gonna we're gonna cut it off for the night. Um, we'll we'll pick it back up there uh, in those two verses, and and uh, I'll be around if you guys have any questions or you guys need anything, prayer or anything like that. We'll be here. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, we hope to see you Sunday uh, for Father's Day. We got a, a challenge for us for Father's Day, and uh, I'm looking forward to all things coming in the next several weeks. So love you guys. You are sent. Get out of here.